All right, all right, all right. Welcome to this week's episode of the Herbal Hour Podcast. This is episode 27. We have the great and the marvelous Dr. Joshua Korn on with us today. Dr. Korn is a naturopathic physician that has a private practice out here in Oregon. He specializes in men's health, addiction, and chronic disease. In this episode, we dive into his take on the health at every size philosophy, how men can stay healthy, things they can do, natural treatments for the most common male health issues like ED, for example, and the naturopathic approach to addiction and what causes addiction. Thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the Herbal Hour podcast. I have some exciting news. We have had over a thousand downloads in just the last 30 days in this last month. We have listeners all around the world listening to these topics in natural health. Thank you guys so much for your support and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Also, if you're the type of person who likes watching the video episodes to a podcast, we have a channel on YouTube. Check us out. It's called Herbal Hour Podcast. So if you want to see our pretty faces, that's the place to go. We would also love to hear what you guys have to say about the podcast. Um, Topics that you like, topics that you want to hear about. Uh, You can comment on our Apple Podcasts or you can go on our YouTube channel. We'd love to hear from you guys. Without further ado, here's our guest. All right, Dr. Korn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Yeah, um, I've been on clinical shifts with you, and we've had many great conversations, and I think this is a great opportunity to get in-depth on a lot of great topics. So can you tell us today how you got started in naturopathic medicine? Yeah, I think uh, particularly germane to the podcast that you do, it was really all about herbs. Um, When I was a kid, my mom's friends, one year for her birthday, bought her a bunch of herbs and planted an herb garden for her because it was the 90s and I'm from Asheville, North Carolina. Mm. So, you know, it was like cool to be kind of crunchy hippie. Mm -hmm. So she had an herb garden. They got her a few books and my mom liked it. Okay. But I loved it. I was like always in the garden, always reading the books, super into it. So that really became kind of my hobby. And then I wanted to like collect every plant that I could. So whenever we went to nurseries or plant shows or stuff, then I would always be looking for a different herb that I could put in the garden. Um, so it was just always something I was really drawn to. And then in undergrad, I did international studies and geography. So I've been interested in how cultures work and how people and social movements kind of function in societies. Um, And when I was thinking about what to do for grad school, I was initially interested in ethnobotany and learning about how traditional cultures use plants. Mm. Um, I did some volunteer hours at the North Carolina Herbarium, which if you don't know what an herbarium is, it's like a library of plants. And I got Mm. to help with the cataloging of the grasses of New Brunswick, which was real boring. (laughs) The grasses, yeah, those aren't like medicinal or anything. No, they're not. And it was like, you know, I understand that these things need to be done and I'm happy Mm -hmm. that there are people out there doing it, but (laughs) you didn't want to be the person doing it. Yeah. It was like, you know, six hours a week of me (laughs) gluing glasses, grasses on pages with labels and stuff. And like, glad somebody does it. But I was like, you know, I would like to do something that's a little bit more interactive with people and maybe does more one-on-one good. Um, so that's how I found naturopathic medicine. It was a way to use something that I've been always interested in and kind of take it to the next level, kind of beyond just like, I like herbs. I grow some in my garden, you know, I make really simple tinctures and medicines and stuff, but I don't at the, you know, 
when you're a layperson and you aren't exposed to like everything that we get in our education and the community and like mm. all the teachers we have, it's kind of hard to understand exactly like how big the world of herbal medicine is. Mm. Um, so that was really cool coming to the school and coming to Portland and kind of seeing just how much is out there. So you were in the research program at NUNM, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What uh, inspired you particularly to go into research? Because in terms of natural medicines, although research is getting better and better, it's mm-hmm. something that's definitely been pretty lacking, actually. For sure. Yeah, I think that was part of it, is that I wanted to understand how the research part of medicine worked and how we could use that to further what we do. And when you actually start digging into the research, there's lots of studies on what we do and what we use. It's just maybe they were really small or they weren't the best quality because of financial funding concerns. And so um, I was really just interested in figuring out, like, how do we make that better? What are, you know, like, we're doing things in our medicine that have really big impacts on people. So how do we get that out there? How do Mm -hmm. we, like systematize that because a lot of us use the same stuff. We use the same plants. We use the same protocols. How do we put that out into the world so that, you know, it gets attention, it gets more um, studies behind it, and there's more evidence, and then it's more widely used. I think ideally that medicine, you know, is not divided up into conventional and naturopathic and osteopathic and chiropractic, like all that stuff. I think those are just kind of false labels. Mm. It's like, I think medicine is medicine. Like what works works. And a lot of what we do works really well. That's a really, really good point. Uh, especially, um, are you familiar with the eclectic physicians? Mm -hmm. Right. So they were basically like MDs in the early 1900s who used herbs, but they also maybe used pharmaceuticals Mm -hmm. if they needed to. Yeah. So that that. divide comes like later of this idea that Mm -hmm. there's this like, alternative holistic practitioner and then there's this like conventional doc yeah. when really not that long ago everyone just used whatever worked they would exactly. use an herb for this they would use a pharmaceutical for that yeah. they would do a surgery for this they would you know do a mm-hmm. diet for this well i think it's like a you know I, I really think that's one of the beauties of kind of our education what we learn is that like we we really try to do what works at the time and what works for the patient you know and where they are right now and that's different for different people um so i think it's cool to get that experience and to see that because um i think in the end that's where healthcare has to go like what works works yeah absolutely i mean as much as the current um healthcare model has been resisting bringing in herbs and other Mm -hmm. alternative therapies and how much resistance insurance companies have Mm -hmm. put up people have such a big desire for them that Mm -hmm. now they kind of have to just comply basically they really have no other choice because of the interest in it yeah it's true i think there's more and more interest in that and i think honestly as healthcare gets more and more expensive and access to healthcare honestly gets less and less in this country there's more interest in more traditional mm. forms of treatment um and when you look at the research i think that you know the scientific research we have is certainly good support but also traditional uses of plants that's evidence that's research like it's it's um it is maybe not a randomized control trial Mm -hmm. but it has been done over hundreds of years thousands of years in some cases to figure out how do these herbs work how do they work best what do they do how what other herbs can we use them in combination with to make them more effective it's like with um with turmeric you know like if you just take plain turmeric by itself you're just gonna poop it out you're not gonna absorb it 
it's that traditional knowledge piece that you need to use it with fat or black pepper to help the absorption of it, that that's where we really see it have an effect. So now we see supplements that have those things in them to help with the bioavailability. But um, so I think like pulling from traditional uses, from the scientific research, kind of just marrying all those things together. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I love that idea. Um, I'm obviously very into the traditional aspect of Mm -hmm. herbs and I think there's so much, such a wealth of information about Mm -hmm. them. And if anything, if one wanted to approach it scientifically, I think it can even guide research. Mm -hmm. But I kind of had this uh, thing that I've been thinking about, like what's the best use of research in uh, the natural sphere uh, how do we get beyond you know, just pr- confirming things that may or may not be true based on tradition and get into like actually learning things and finding new medicines from herbs? I Yeah, I well, I think those are two kind of two different questions. Finding new medicines from herbs, I think that that can go into like pharmacokinetics and pharmacology and that kind of, you know, like how do we isolate compounds and find a medicine from it? Mm. I'm not as much into that as I am figuring out like, how does this whole system work? Mm. And I think really that my research interest now, when I was a, my graduate thesis work was actually on an herbal formula. It was on the hemp formula, which is hydrastis, echinacea, myrrh, and phytolacca that we mm. use for uh, strep throat. Nobody had ever researched that before. So I wanted to figure out, like, does it actually inhibit bacterial growth? So that's what it did. It does. Um But my research interests now are more kind of, yeah, how do we get out of that confirmatory, like, this individual treatment works, to what does the whole system do? Mm. Like, does our system of medicine work? Because we all practice a little bit differently. Mm. But is is the system as a whole working? And I think there's some preliminary research in that from CCNM, the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto, that is showing that as a system, naturopathic medicine is effective. So I think that kind of exploring that more deeply, I think that's my future with research. Mm, I like that idea. Um, there's this case in, uh, in Tibet. They had this conference. I forget. It was a very, very long time ago. I think it might have been like before 1000 AD or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and they brought together practitioners from all around the world. And, you know, they all had the same patients and they just looked at who as a whole, could help those people the mm-hmm. most and mm-hmm. kind of compared them. And then they kind of learned from there. Mm-hmm. So like looking at maybe comparing not like an herb versus a pharmaceutical, but like how a naturopathic physician practices mm-hmm. compared to uh, an MD on the same exact patient and what the results are long term. I mean, it's kind of like a competition in a way, but competition is also good for like making people better, right? Well, and I think... it. Totally. And I think that we also can frame it not as much as a competition, but just as ways that we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. All right. Like I think that MDs, I've worked with a lot of MDs in my residency and in my internship years. They do lots of things really great. Naturopathic doctors do lots of things really great. Like everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. And so I think like seeing what are the strengths and weaknesses of these whole systems is really what's going to get us to where medicine is not so compartmentalized. And it's just like, what works works right um and i also think that understanding that different systems are going to work for different people mm-hmm. um some people kind of and this gets into the more like woo-woo energetic parts mm-hmm. <laughs> of our medicine Good. that's the part I which like. i really like <laughs> um this is the art of medicine it's like you know not everybody is really ready to talk about how their high blood pressure is related to 
traumatic events in their past. You know, like, they're just not ready to have that. And that's fine. Like, for them right now, taking a pharmaceutical is what they can handle, and that's fine. And when they're ready to get into the, the root causes and really figure it out, I think that changes what kind of medicine they need. So I think, you know, the naturopathic modalities are maybe not right for everybody all the time, but there's always a time and a place for them, for everybody, just kind of where, where they are. Agreed. Yeah. Meeting people where they are is a, mm-hmm. is a big and important thing really in, in medicine, but really just in personal relationships totally. in general. Totally. Um, so I have a, a question from mm-hmm. a audience member oh. about male, male health. I know that's Exciting. something you're very uh, interested in and we'll mm-hmm. definitely dive super deep into that topic mm-hmm. just to start that part off. Tiffany Mayberry asks, what can modern low maintenance males do to stay on top of uh, their health? So how often should they come in? What yearly special tests do they need? And what mm-hmm. kind of self-care exams? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, I think, you know, prevention is the best medicine. It's one of the tenets of our medicine and in general. It should be one of the tenets of medicine as a whole. But um, I think the prevention piece sometimes gets lost. Um, men, like young men, generally healthy men, don't necessarily need yearly exams or tests up to a certain point if there's family history of certain things high cholesterol, diabetes, heart disease, that that kind of stuff, then we'll do that. Um, I think the most important thing is to just have an established relationship with a doctor um, so that you can talk to them about your family history, about your personal history, and see what are the, where are the pieces that you could adjust, right? So with men in general, they don't like to go to the doctor Mm -hmm. in our society, 40% of men would only go to the doctor if it was an absolute emergency, Mm -hmm. according to... Like if their leg fell off or something. And then they would still, like, hesitate a little bit about it, like, "Eh, it it might regrow. (laughs) So, you know, that's that's kind of a cultural, societal thing. Like, how do we get men to engage? And I think that what I try to do is not be too pushy about, you need all of these things and we're going to change everything about you and we're going to just, like, you know completely adjust your life on this first visit. It's really about developing that relationship. Because, you know, a 30-year-old guy comes in to establish care with me. I don't want to make the visit real long. I don't have to get into, like, super deep stuff if he's not into it. It's really just establishing that relationship so that in 10 years, 20 years, we can have those conversations about, like, okay, now as you are getting older, here are some things that we can think about. Um... I also think that with anything, but especially like health, it's not about perfection. It's about consistency. Mm. So having consistent relationship with a provider is important, but also encouraging our patients to make those consistent small changes. That's where we really have a big impact. Mm. And that's where it's usually most difficult, right? It is. That, which is like, I try to start real small. I'm like, let's eat a vegetable, one vegetable, <laughs> it's like a day. one broccoli, one broccoli a day. Like, you know, so for some people, it really is that it's like, can you eat one little bit of broccoli every day? And they're like, yeah, I'll do it. And then you slowly work your way up. Some people, they're already there. It's just, again, it's not meeting people where they are. Mm. What's your approach when somebody has tried everything lifestyle wise, where do you go in there? So there's this, uh, there's cases I've heard of people with, you know, sleep issues that they've literally tried everything. Mm-hmm. Everything that they do is impeccable. You know, their mm-hmm. sleep hygiene is amazing. Mm-hmm. They get exercise, they eat great. Mm-hmm. They meditate every single day for, uh, an hour. Um, 
how is someone like that? What do you start thinking of then? Well, that's when I like to get weird. Mm. I want to talk about your emotions and your traumas and your life history. And I want to talk to you about (laughs) astrology and drainage remedies and all that kind of stuff that like, you know, if everything else has been exhausted, there's still something there. Mm. Physical manifestations of disease and imbalance are very often emotional issues that just have gone unprocessed, right? Like Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways, if we think about like amuncturology and naturopathic medicine, like we talk about the liver and the kidneys and the lungs and all that kind of stuff, those are physical amuncturies. But I think that in general, our whole body is an amuncturie for our soul, Mm. for our emotional body. And so when our emotional body when something's not right, it's going to express itself somewhere. And it's not necessarily in one of those amunctory organs. It can be anywhere. Mm. So that's what I like to get into with that. Mm. What have you noticed in terms of um, males? What com- common kind of psychological and mental um, emotional issues have you mm-hmm. noticed with them specifically? A lot of disconnection, loneliness, um, And I think a lack of a sense of purpose. I think that's one thing that really plagues males in our society today. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in general, our generation is really so disconnected from everything. Like we have this illusion of being connected all the time on social media. And like, Mm -hmm. obviously we're both on Instagram. Like, you know, we do that. Like I'm shout out totally. Like, yeah. (laughs) Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. (laughs) Let's just put that in there. And now let's talk about how Instagram's terrible. Yeah. Destroying our lives. (laughs) But I mean, you know, I think those things have a place, Mm -hmm. but, but it's so easy to get sucked into that world and believe that you're having real authentic connections with people when really like it's a wall, it's a mask. It's just, you're putting up what you want people to see. And we are substituting actual, intimate relationships and I don't mean just like sexually intimate I mean like emotionally intimate relationships for that kind of facade of social media and I think in addition to that I see a lot of men kind of in this uh Peter Pan syndrome world where it's like there's not a whole lot of responsibility there's not in our generation I think like um you know we have dating apps we have I mean, and I'll just be honest, a lot of times dating apps are just hookup apps, right? Mm-hmm. You just like find somebody, hook up, and have a good time, and then you never see them again. Like, there's no need for commitment and responsibility. And I think that those are actually really good things for people in general. But I think for men, when they don't have that, they really kind of get in this position of like, I don't have to do anything with my life. I can just like hang out and go out drinking and play video games and mm. just like kind of perpetually be in this like early twenties world. Um, whereas I think in our society, we generally expect that women are going to do most of the emotional labor. So even if women are not, um, you know, even if they are not in a committed like romantic relationship, they're still taking care of their parents and other family members. And they, they are still like fulfilling those roles more than I think, men do when they don't have that commitment piece and that like mm-hmm. um, responsibility piece. So I feel mm-hmm. like that drives a lot of mental, emotional issues for guys because they kind of feel lost. And with that, I think there's a lot of anxiety that comes up. There's a lot of pressure from society with men that like nobody likes to talk about. Like men are expected to look a certain way, act a certain way, 
behave and, you know, like function a certain way. And I think that's really challenging for lots of guys to not be able to talk about how hard that can be. Yeah, that um, brings to mind uh, Dr. Peterson's work. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar at all with mm-hmm. it, but he talks so much, so extensively about the thing that uh, most men and really people in general are missing is more kind of responsibility in the sense of meaningful activity of their life mm-hmm. and you know being accountable for something, uh, mm-hmm. moving towards something greater, having a purpose essentially. Yes, I I totally um, I totally agree with that, and I feel that I I think that social media is honestly one of those things. And again, like I'm I'm not trying to dog on social media because I'm on social media, <laughs> but I I try to keep that perspective with myself that like it's not real. It's not getting you anywhere necessarily. Um, like I have my Instagram. I think you do too, for the purpose of like trying to connect with people in the real world and like make a difference for people in the real world. Like that's the ultimate goal with that. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I think we don't have that connection. We don't have the connection to each other and the responsibility to each other. And I think you can see that everywhere in our society. Like everything is so divided and polarized and like there's not that um, mentality of people working together and understanding that like we're, we're all in this together mm-hmm. as a whole world. Like we, we gotta come together and do stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that causes a lot of issues. Yeah. Like a lack of sense of belonging, lack of community, mm-hmm. you know, how many people could say they even know their next door neighbor right. these days? That's, yeah. that's unheard of. If you look, you know, a hundred, 200 years ago, totally. everyone he, depended on I each mean, other. I mean, even like my grandparents, you know, like I, I remember growing up, I stayed with my grandparents, um, a lot while my parents were working, like they knew all their neighbors. I knew their neighbors. I went to their neighbors' houses all the time. Like I don't do that now. I don't interact with my neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. I occasionally see my neighbor walk in and out. I'm like, Oh, I forgot I had a neighbor. Mm -hmm. So that's, so what is the, some of the most common issues that you see um, males facing in terms of like physical uh, Mm -hmm. disease processes, things like that? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, dependent on age group, like with Mm -hmm. uh, men in their 50s, 60s, heart disease is kind of the biggest thing. So that's the number one killer in this country. Um, And that oftentimes goes back to diet and lifestyle issues that, you know, we're all, uh, we're all exposed to all the time. But I think also a lot of that goes back to stress. And I see stress as being I don't know. It's kind of for me like the number one cause of disease. Um, it's something that I really struggle with too. Cause like I, I work a lot. I, you know, I thrive on stress too. I say I thrive on stress and then I'm just like burn out all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, but I feel like our culture mm-hmm. is just, that's where we are. That's mm-hmm. kind of how everyone operates. Well, when you do that for 30, 40 years, it takes a toll. Yeah. Um, I also see lots of guys for like sexual health and wellness and, a lot of that ties into cardiovascular health as well, because erectile function essentially is vascular. You know, it's a cardiovascular disease in a lot of ways. Like if your vasculature is not functioning properly in your penis, you can't achieve an erection. That should also point to the fact that it's probably not functioning properly elsewhere in the body. Mm. So it ties into that, but it also ties into that mental emotional piece we were talking about as well. So with anxiety, with that need to, um, the standard that men hold themselves to and feel like they cannot achieve 
that standard, and then that really plays into their erectile function, inability to like connect and have intimacy with someone because we do live in a society that really um, values sex over intimacy, um, emotional intimacy in a lot of ways. And I'm not like saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that having a healthy sex life is good, but having a balance is good too. Right. Yeah. And it's, we live in a time that's just very go, 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 very like mm-hmm. sympathetic nervous system, always burning, burning. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is you can feel great for a while doing that, especially mm-hmm. if you're doing something that's meaningful uh, for you or you're fulfilling some kind of purpose. You feel like you're mm-hmm. you know getting ahead, you're moving forward. But eventually it takes a toll on you because like the body has a limited amount of uh, resources and Mm -hmm. we don't really have this cultural idea of the importance of like rest. Right. Which I think other countries do a little bit better, like especially in Europe. I agree. I, yeah, we do not prioritize rest at all. I think we look at rest as weakness, like laziness. It's laziness. Like why would you need to rest? Like you should just, you should just work like 15 hours a day, Mm -hmm. go to sleep and just do it again. And just until you die. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, so I, part of my, part of my week, I spend at the men's residential center, which is a residential drug and alcohol treatment facility. And I have supervised student shifts there in the past. And one of my students, um, really had a, had a kind of a breakthrough moment with a patient because he was in this go, 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 like he was, you know, in recovery and he's going to do perfect and he's going to work out and he's going to like eat great. And he's not going to, you know, smoke with like everybody else says, he's just going to do everything perfectly. And of course he got burned out immediately. And she said, you're doing everything else like a badass. You got to rest like a badass. Mm -hmm. Like you've, you've got to like actively rest. And that just like blew his mind. He was like, Oh, okay. I got to rest like a badass. Like, is that okay to say badass on your podcast? Yeah, it okay. is. It's preferred, oh. actually. Okay, great. Perfect. <laughs> it's a badass podcast if anybody's <laughs> listening right now. So I, the herbal I, hour. I, hope this, I, I can't call this student out, but hopefully she's listening because I thought that was so cool. And that, um, that really changed his perspective. But I agree with you. We're always in a sympathetic state. Like, mm. we never rest. And, I, you know, I'm guilty of that as well. Like, I don't ever rest either. My way of resting is like, I work six days a week and then on the seventh day, I'm just exhausted. And like, that's not rest. That's that's just, you just like sit there and you stare at the wall and you're just like, I don't know if I could do this next week. Exactly. And then it's like, okay, I'll do it again. You wake up, you're like, I guess I could do it this week. Sympathetic drive again. Here we go. Um, So what are your go-to therapies and approaches you use for, you know, a patient who comes in and they're just completely burnt out? mm -hmm. Where do you start with that? Well, it kind of depends on where they are on the scale of being burned mm-hmm. out, right? Like if we think about how adaptogens work and how how we kind of conceptualize that term adrenal fatigue, right? Like mm-hmm. does adrenal fatigue exist as a medical diagnosis? Who knows? But it certainly di- uh, exists as a functional diagnosis. So I think if someone is just kind of always pushing themselves and they're stressed and they're not sleeping super well, kind of in that beginning stage, I use ashwagandha. A lot because it just it's a it's a you know uh it is a more sedative adaptogen it calms you down a little bit more it's not you know it's not going to ramp you up too much and Mm -hmm. i don't want them to get ramped up too much Mm -hmm. so use that a lot use a lot of phosphatidylserine fish oil as well those all three of those have been studied to help with adrenal function hpa access Mm -hmm. function and sleep and lots of times people just need to sleep better and then they'll feel a little bit better i think beyond that you get into this place of needing those more stimulating adaptogens, 
ginseng, eleuthero, rhodiola, those kinds of things to help support the adrenal gland and support sympathetic function. At some point, people get themselves into a place where they know that they need to rest and they know they need to take it easy, but they've overcommitted and they just can't. Mm. And so I think we can spend a lot of time telling people that they need to rest, but if you, you know, somebody's got a family, Mm. there's only so much they can do about it. So being able to support them to get through that until they can start taking some things off their plate, I do a lot of work with that. Meeting them where they are, you know, let's say they have a newborn or something and you're telling them you need to get more rest and they're like, I can't sleep. What exactly. do you mean? How am I going to get more rest? Yeah. I have a, a patient who I've worked with quite a bit on this over the past few months who has, you know, two very active teenagers and they are constantly trying to get them to all these extracurricular activities and they're on traveling sports teams. So they travel with them all the time. Both parents work full time. They have aging parents, you know, they're just kind of going all the time and there's not, they can't take very much off their plate. So we are using some like adrenal supportive in a more stimulating way (laughs) um, supplements and herbs with them than I probably normally would do if somebody can take stuff off their plate. Ideally, you know, the best, uh, (laughs) the best cure for that kind of stress is to just get it out of your life and actually rest. Right. Just remove the stress. If you can, that would be the best. Yeah. If it's a negative kind of stress, right. If it's the stress of like doing what you want to do, then, Maybe there's a way to figure out. Mm-hmm. I think it also goes into spend a little time every day doing something that you really love. Yes, I agree. Doing something that's like useless. Mm-hmm. Doing something that has no like no idea of like productivity, uh, especially for people who tend to like overwork themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what are t- activities like that for you? Like what are your kind of unwinding things you love to do that you just enjoy that aren't really like useful mm-hmm. in any sense? Maybe they're useful for your mental wellness, but. Well, I think for me, and one thing that I really recommend to a lot of my patients um, and that I try to talk to my patients about is social interaction and making a connection with other people. Because I notice when I am making a connection with someone who I just really can be myself around and I can actually relax that I feel so much better. Like, like one thing that I do a lot to relax and kind of recharge is I just go watch dumb movies with my friends and we put on a really dumb movie and we just make fun of it the whole time. (laughs) We laugh for two hours and it's just like, it is so um, renewing for me because I just laughed with my friends for two hours. And I think that as we, you know, like in high school and college, it's real easy to prioritize those things because you're always around your friends. And even in medical school, because we're around people 24 hours a day, like basically live with those people. Um, but as you kind of get out into the world and into the adult world, and what you see is that like people don't prioritize friendship as much. And I think that really is something that can be very renewing for people. So I try to encourage people to take some time to do that. There is uh, There was a research study published a few years ago that said men tend to benefit from having uh, two nights a week of having like guys nights, having time with their friends to just like unwind, relax, not with their partner, not doing work, just like be with their bros and hang out. And I really like that idea because I, you know, is two nights a week feasible for everybody? No. But can you take one night a week and hang out with your friends and get some kind of like 
social interaction that is real in person. Just, you know, and be silly. Like, mm. adults don't laugh. Yeah. And, you, like, we got to laugh. we got to have fun. Right. You heard it from a naturopathic physician. <laughs> Go out and have fun with your <laughs> boys. Right. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a guy, that's what, what you should do, especially on the weekends. Um, I have to ask, what are your favorite dumb movies to watch? Uh, or well, recently that you yeah, watched? Yeah, what have we watched recently? Um, we recently watched The Fanatic, which is a film directed by Fred Durst. And he, uh, it's John Travolta plays in it. And John Travolta is this like <laughs> fanatic fan, um, who stalks an actor and it gets real weird real fast. Um, but the movie's only like 80 minutes long. <laughs> I think it was produced by Redbox, the like DVD rental. Oh, service. is it like a newer movie? Like, mm-hmm. well, uh, yeah. John Travolta's on the way out, I guess. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's not great, but it's a real good dumb movie to watch and just laugh at. Yeah. We also, um, are a big fan of, uh, Battlefield Earth. Was that the one? From the Battle, early two Battlestar Galactica? Or? No, I think it's Battlefield Earth oh. with John Travolta again. <laughs> it was like Something a Scientology project. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but honestly, we'll we'll kind of watch anything that's on. Mm. So, getting back into uh, men's health mm-hmm. things, what are some of the uh, herbs you find yourself using most often mm-hmm. for men's health complaints? Yeah, I for use... For which complaints? It, right. Um, ashwagandha is probably the most commonly prescribed herb in my practice um, because it just hits on so many things that people in general, but especially men, deal with. Um, it's good for stress. It's good for athletic performance. There's some research that it raises testosterone a little bit, not a huge amount, but a little bit. Um, it helps with sleep. It helps with blood sugar, blood pressure, cholesterol. There's all this like emerging research about what it can do. And I think because it is an adaptogen, our society just needs adaptogens in general. Like pretty much everybody could be on. Right. Like a daily multivitamin. (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually how they're kind of meant to be used, especially something like, um, ashwagandha. Is there any other uh, herbs that you find yourself using? Oh yeah, for sure. I use, um, so I use tribulus a lot in my practice Mm. for libido issues. There's lots of products and information on the internet said tribulus raises testosterone. There's no research suggesting that, but what tribulus does do that the research suggests, and also in my clinical practice that I see all the time is it really increases libido. Um, so I use that a lot for, uh, confidence building with guys. Cause lots of times I think with erectile issues and intimacy issues, you kind of get in this place where if you have any kind of like performance anxiety about how you are going to perform during intercourse, erection is not going to work as well. Then you get in this vicious cycle of like, well, it didn't work that time. It's never going to work again. I just don't have any interest in trying, you know, and that becomes really dangerous because like sex is essential for human life. I I mean, obviously for procreation, but I think it's a, it's a big part of having a fulfilled life is having that intimate connection and the physical intimacy. So I use tribulus a lot as a confidence builder really to just like increase libido, increase desire so that men are able to engage in that more frequently. Um, I also use, what else do I use a lot in my practice? I'm trying to think. Um, for prostate specific things, I use a lot of nettle root mm. for that. Um, I think the research on sal palmetto is kind of mixed. The historical uses certainly are, show that it, um, that it is effective. I've also used sal palmetto in PCOS mm. for, um, 
in a women's health world to mm-hmm. lower androgens. Um, and that worked for that. So I use salt palmetto and nettle root together, but I think that um, I like the idea of using the plants that grow where you live. Um, and nettles are very common where we mm-hmm. live. So I use that a lot. What are some lifestyle approaches to those conditions you talked about, like libido and mm-hmm. heart health? Well, all of them relate to stress. <laughs> so yeah. it's the stuff we've talked about, right? Like I spend a lot of time talking about sleep with people, how to improve their sleep, um, working on the lifestyle thing, like sleep hygiene and uh, not using screens at night and all that kind of stuff. Also, exercise is a big piece of what I do. Um, I practice from a weight neutral body positive angle. That's what I do. So I like working with people who have bigger bodies because a lot of times they've had crappy health care. And specifically with exercise, people who are not um, accustomed to exercising often don't understand what it means to exercise, right? It, it just means you're moving your body in a, hopefully in a way that you like hopefully in a way that is celebrating what your body can do because our bodies are really cool. Um, that's, that's what exercise means. But a lot of times, and it's not just people in bigger bodies, it's, you know, people who just didn't exercise when they were younger. They didn't play sports. They weren't, you know, they were like me. They were in band or something and they mm-hmm. weren't playing sports all the time. So they don't maybe understand all those pieces. So I do a lot of like exercise prescriptions and just talking through like why it's really important to move your body, why it's important to develop muscle mass, why it's important to maintain muscle mass for metabolic health and cardiovascular health and mental health. Like just moving our bodies makes us feel better in, in general. So Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Especially if you can find a way that you really enjoy. Exactly. You'll be able to actually do it consistently if you actually yes. like it. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that like, you know, because the research says that, you know, this amount of exercise of this type lifting weights is the best for health. I'm going to go force myself to do that. Mm-hmm. Even though I hate lifting weights cause it's boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there's so many other things you can, you can do. And I think even just using another word like, uh, movement instead mm-hmm. of exercise and just thinking of it in terms like that, like movement and like resistant movement and like yes. explosive movement and like do things that make you use your body for what it's been created mm-hmm. to yeah, do I love for that. millions of years. Yeah, I love uh, referring to it as movement because, yeah, I think exercise has, uh, for a lot of people, a really negative connotation. And when I talk to a lot of my patients, especially older patients, um, like 50s, 60s, 70s, about strength training and resistance training. And whenever I say that, they're like, I'm not going, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to lift weights. I'm like, no, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is like do some lunges, do some squats, do some wall push-ups. Mm-hmm. These really simple things that anybody can do that's still engaging the muscles and having the same beneficial effect. There was a study released a couple years ago that showed that older adults benefited from one hour a week of resistance training. Just one hour for the entire week. Like, you don't have to do very much. You can split that up, you know, 10 minutes a day for six days. That's not much time. Yeah. But there's a, like, demonstrable... Be- excuse me, benefit and reduce mortality from that. Right. And um, one of the difficult things about that is everything kind of goes together, right? So Mm -hmm. if somebody's like overstressed and they're overworked, Mm -hmm. they're actually really likely to to cancel exercise to do more work. Mm -hmm. And then they get into this vicious cycle that's very hard to to get out of. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So you do some work with um, people with substance use Mm -hmm. uh, disorders. Mm -hmm. 
Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that and like experiences you've had? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I work at the men's residential center. It's a residential drug and alcohol treatment facility. They are, um, a facility that has 52 beds. So there's 52 guys there. I provide naturopathic services to them. They have a psych nurse practitioner on staff. They have counselors, they have social workers, um, it is a really well-rounded program that's very trauma-informed and very um, holistic from how it works. So it's not just about treating the substance use disorder, but it's about treating them as a whole person, which I love and really aligns with like what we do in our medicine. Um, they spend a lot of time working on life skills with them. So I have taught a health class there, just do general kind of health teaching, like let's talk about diet. Let's, you know, let's talk about general macronutrients and micronutrients and like how much of each you need to eat and all that kind of stuff that like maybe they never understood that. They never got that. Um, they also spend a lot of time with the clients figuring out ways to engage socially without using. And I think that has such a key function in someone's recovery because a lot of times with people that social aspect is one of the big reasons that they use. Right. So their, if, uh, their friend group, their circle exactly. is always using. So even mm -hmm. if they try to stop, it's like, it's always there and then right. there might be peer pressure and things exactly. like that. Or like, then they don't have any friends. It's like, yeah. I don't know how to engage without doing that. So I really just appreciate that program so much for how they work with people. From my side of things, I do some medication management with them as far as, you know, like, is their blood pressure high? Do they need an antidepressant, something like that? Have they been on it before? Did, you know, so I do a lot of refills and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But from a naturopathic side of things, I use lots of herbs and supplements that are donated by our generous partners um, to help with side effects from coming off substance use. Mm -hmm. um, so most common things are anxiety, depression, insomnia, chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, um, some of the same treatments work on all those things. So magnesium is a big piece of what I use there. Magnesium is good for anxiety. It's good for chronic pain. It's good for sleep. So lots of people there take magnesium. Alcacalm uh, as a product that's that powdered magnesium or calm mm -hmm. or whatever um, tends to work really well for those things. Also, many of the guys there are on medication-assisted treatment, so they're on Suboxone. Um, or methadone, usually Suboxone at our clinic. Um, and so constipation becomes an issue. Magnesium can be helpful for that too. Uh, passionflower is another thing that I use a lot there because passionflower is a really great nervine. It can also help with anxiety. I have found that passionflower, did I say passion fruit? No, you said passionflower. Passionflower, okay. Although that's related Many people actually don't know that. Yeah. That the, the passion fruit is actually comes from pa uh, passion flower. Huh. I didn't know that for a while. Either. Well, I love a passion fruit yeah. as well. Uh, but <laughs> I, I was like talking. I was like, did I say passion fruit? No, yeah. Okay. okay. If you <laughs> well, did, if I, I totally like okay. went. If like, I did, I didn't mean that. It's passion flower. <laughs> Passiflora. Yes. Yeah. So Passiflora, great for anxiety. I've also found that it. I don't know how, but it seems there's one formulation I use that seems to help some people with quitting smoking. That's another big piece of what I do is lots of guys, when they stop using meth or heroin, they start smoking because everybody else is doing it. And it's a way to kind of cope with that, um, with some of the, you know, side effects, which 
honestly, like, I'm totally fine if they need to smoke right now to not use methamphetamine or heroin. Like, we can deal with that later. Yeah, there's like, uh, you know, right levels to, <laughs> it's, it's to a, yeah, it's a hierarchy of <laughs> yeah. of substance use. Um, but I have actually had some guys that use passion flower and feel like they are not wanting to smoke as much. So I think that's pretty cool. And there's some very early research that shows that passion flower may be helpful for neuropathic chronic pain, which I think mm-hmm. is just really cool because lots of my guys there have neuropathies from injuries um so that's an herb that i use really frequently there i love passion flower it's yeah. probably one of my favorites especially if you make like a really strong tea out of it mm-hmm. like 10 grams or something like really a, a good amount like in a french press mm-hmm. um it's one of those herbs that is really noticeably calming and like totally even kind of like at that dose it's like mildly euphoric you're like Oh, wow. I actually just fuck. I feel kind of good. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's well, I mean, it's it's hitting those GABA receptors, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it, it is a strong agonist of those receptors to calm you down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's also interesting that it has um, Harmala alkaloids in it, mm. which are uh, some of the like MAOIs that are found in things like ayahuasca in mm. other plants. So it has like a kind of like. I would describe it as like a very, very subtle psychedelic quality, especially in uh, very higher doses. Interesting. So it's an interesting one. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool one. It's, it's typically found in mixed formulas, mm-hmm. but I find that you just get like a high dose of just that, and that does pretty much anything you could want for yeah. like anxiety types uh, symptoms when you feel like, um, you know anxious and too mm-hmm. much energy overstimulated that yeah. kind of thing i use it in a mixed formula because that's what we have but right that's cool to know yeah mm-hmm. high dose teas are the way of the future <laughs> i know i love a tea yeah. i like a tea better than a tincture yeah me personally yeah i also like the ritual aspect of making a tea and i think for some people i prescribe teas and prefer teas because i think it takes them out of their life yeah because they have to do something for some people, that's not good because I don't have time to do it. But for some people, I think that like I'm going to stop, I'm going to make my medicine is a really big piece of the treatment. Right, that like ritual aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end of it, I guess it's how you can get those herbs into somebody's life, right? Totally. So exactly. I had a patient who I was like very excited about, and I like gave this tea, and uh, she's like, "I don't want to do that. I don't like teas." Mm-hmm. It's like, "All right, well, we got this tincture." Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, f- you find your way to get the herb into exactly. your body to help you out. Exactly. Um, million dollar question. Mm-hmm. What do you think causes addiction? Ooh. Uh, oh, I feel like I've been a broken record all night and I've just said the same things over and over. But I think lack of connection is really mm. what contributes to addiction in a big way that we don't um, prioritize in lots of conventional treatments. And that's one reason I really like the organization I work with because they really try to get the guys to connect with each other and other social outlets so that they have connection. Um, What we know from the adverse childhood experience study in the late nineties is that adverse childhood experiences predispose people to substance use and also physical and mental health issues mm-hmm. basically like, like childhood traumas totally um and so when you when i am seeing these patients so many of them have those in their lives and they never got that secure attachment to other people and so that that lack of like emotional intimacy and emotional safety i think really just messes with people we all deal with that in different ways so if someone has that in their 
past and then their brain chemistry is predisposed to, you know, uh, getting off in a certain way so that they are addicted to certain substances. That to me is the formula for addiction. Different people deal with it in different ways. For some people, it could be that they uh, use food to medicate or they use exercise to medicate or they use sex to medicate, right? Like we all have, everybody has their vices. And I think that um, I'm, I'm excited to see where addiction medicine goes now that we are finally treating it not as a criminal thing, but as an actual like <laughs> yeah, right. medical condition that we need to like understand what's going on. Because for so long it was just treated as like, these are like the dregs of society and they're right. just choosing to do this and they're terrible people. And it's like, it's not true at all. It's yeah. Like they're such good people. Um, and I think that for, for me and for the students who work there, like that experience of like seeing someone and being with someone and making that connection and showing them that like a healthcare provider can be nice and can care about you. That has such a huge impact both on the patients, but on the students too. Mm. I'm sure you've heard of that study. I think it was done on uh, rats Mm -hmm. where they um, were uh, testing like addiction to cocaine. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically how the study goes is they had uh, like a rat that was either alone, like in a, in a cage, like deprived of any social connection or anything to do. Um, And they had, I think it was like some kind of button that Mm -hmm. would like release the cocaine. So like every time, they would uh, like release it. They would take it, and eventually they became addicted. And they would just s- literally sit there, and they would just constantly push the button, like mm-hmm. nonstop. Um, but what they found is that for rats that were in like a rat social community um, that had like exercise and like little toys in there, um, they didn't get like addicted to that stimulus. They mm-hmm. may like may have like tried it, but they didn't like become like like they wouldn't like sit there and keep using it and i think they also found interestingly too that the original rat like the one who got addicted when they put them in the social environment they also wouldn't interesting so it's like you remove the person from the environment they're in Mm -hmm. and uh and that addiction just isn't there Mm -hmm. so that's yeah big insight yeah i think addiction you know it's it's very complex but i'm i'm glad that like i said we're finally trying to like look at it more deeply than like a criminal aspect like the brain chemistry is involved the social aspects involved the emotional stuff like there's so many different pieces to it um and it's another reason i really like working there is because we have people who are kind of tackling all of those pieces to help the clients there and it's it's just it's a cool place to be Mm. and it's also obviously addiction is much more common in people in lower socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. so in a sense the way I view it in a lot of ways is it's making up for something that's lacking. So if mm-hmm. there's like a lack of uh, purpose or meaning in life and one feels mm-hmm. like they really are just stuck and they can't go yeah. anywhere, yeah. at least they can feel better about it totally. because their their nervous system is just making them feel like crap all the time mm-hmm. for the position that they're in, essentially. Yeah. Totally. Um, in I, their lives. I agree with that. I think that, yeah, when you think about things on a more... Um, on a bigger like population level, that's totally true. That's trauma, right? Like that's an adverse childhood experience mm-hmm. like, or an adverse adult experience. It's just that feeling of like being trapped and not being able to get out. It's a, it's a way to get out. Mm. You had an excellent lecture on um, health at every size and you kind of uh, briefly mentioned it when we were talking. Can you, uh, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what that kind of philosophy means? Yeah. Um, so Health at Every Size is a, is a movement developed by Linda Bacon, who um, has done a lot of pioneering work looking at weight-based research and kind of picking apart all the assumptions that we have about that. The kind of prevailing wisdom in medicine is that body size is, you know, BMI is related to all of these terrible conditions. When you get into the actual literature and look at the studies, it's that's not the full story. So for me, what having that kind of like body positive, weight neutral approach means is just, I want to help my patients be healthy at whatever size they are. Like if weight loss is a goal of theirs, great. We can talk about that, but I don't do like crash diets or fad diets or anything like that, because in the end, usually people yo-yo diet and that's more dangerous for your heart and your metabolic system than just staying at a stable weight. Um, and I think too, I try to practice from a way of not like stigmatizing people or making them feel bad about their size because that's what they've gotten probably from most medical providers. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's quite a bit of evidence that that does a lot of harm. So in the lecture you're talking about that I did, um, there is, there are research studies that show that healthcare providers tend to spend about 29% less time with their, uh, larger bodied patients. They engage in less education with them specifically about diet and exercise. Cause they just assume they're not going to do it. Um, which is just crazy to me. So I have the same conversations with everybody that comes in my office, no matter what size they are, right? Like we talk about movement. We talk about eating a vegetable cause everybody needs to eat a vegetable or two or three or five. Um, we talk about stress. We talk about sleep. Like it doesn't matter if you're big or small, like all of the, those kind of foundational pieces of health, they're good for everybody. Mm. And I love, uh, there was one thing you said in the lecture that I think was very insightful that this doesn't mean that at any size you are necessarily healthy, right? but it means you can be healthy at totally. a size that might not be conventionally accepted as mm -hmm. being a healthy size. Right. So it's like healthy for you. Right. It, yeah. And I think that's a key piece. And I think that, you know, like in our society, we really equate health to like looking a certain way. Mm -hmm. But if you... If you dig down into it, lots of those people that we think look healthy don't have healthy metabolic function. Celebrities. Health, celebrities, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, they don't have healthy habits. Like they got that body some other way, right? Like, yeah. So, yeah, it's about like just because someone looks a certain way doesn't mean that they are healthy or unhealthy. It's about, yeah, really focusing on like how do we make you the healthiest version of you you can be, right? Like, um, And I have found that that really has resonated with me as a provider, because it's just so, it's just so like fundamentally different for so many people, because for a person in a big body, they, lots of times they go into the doctor and it's pretty much the only thing they get is like, well, you need to lose weight. The doctor doesn't talk to them about like how they <laughs> want them to do that, why they want them to do it. It's just like, oh, well, you're big, you got to lose weight. And then all your problems will go away. And it's like, okay, but maybe like, Maybe they do have high blood pressure. Is it only because of their body size or are they super stressed out? Do they have a terrible job? Do they have a relationship that's really challenging? Um, do they have money issues? Mm. Do they have, you know, like what's their diet like? Are they moving? Like most of the times in conventional medicine, people in big bodies, like they don't get asked those questions. It's just like, oh, this is your body size. You have high blood pressure. It's only because of your weight. So I try to like dig down and like figure out what it is. 
most of the time it's not just their body size, it's something else. Right. And there's also, uh, in this conversation, there's the idea of like constitutional types, Mm -hmm. like in Ayurveda, where Mm -hmm. like the kapha type tends to be like fuller, larger size. And that's actually healthy and natural for them that Mm -hmm. if they aren't in that state, that might actually arguably not be healthy for them Mm -hmm. in some sense. Um, and then there's obviously the ideas of like um, endomorph and mesomorph and mm-hmm. these general ideas that not everyone, you know, should look like this. Like right. people have different natural um, ways. Yeah. And I think also it kind of, you know, and, and this gets really deep into it, but we also with that conversation have to talk about food policy in this country and the fact that we you know, if you go out and order a salad at a restaurant, it's $16 now. Like someone with a low income person cannot afford that. Like mm. we have subsidized certain things in our economy. They're very calorie dense and nutrient poor. And then we hold those people accountable as a person, like a personal failing that their body size is what it is when we haven't given them access to foods that are going to be nourishing to them or to um, movement that's going to be nourishing to their bodies. And so it's just this really like messed up system. That's that, so, so true. And it's, it's honestly kind of the same thing with addiction is like we, we love to in this country, like put all the blame on someone when it's like, well, you didn't like, they didn't have the tools. Like they didn't have any of these opportunities to like make different choices but then you're like shitting on them because they made the choices they made. It's right. like, what else I going to do? Yeah, I mean, with that example of like the salad or the fast food, like mm-hmm. a $16 salad or like a $1 burger. Totally. The $1 burger is faster. It tastes better. Yeah. It's cheaper. And yeah. then once they get on it, they want it again because obviously yeah. they're going to crave it because they're made in such a way that they totally and it's way, almost an addiction. Well, to it's them. way more calorie dense too. So if you're thinking just like it's actually smarter actually probably to get the burger if that's exactly. all you're going to get all day. Exactly. Don't be eating salads because exactly. you're not going to make it. No, you're not. <laughs> you're definitely not going to. You're going to get it. like seventy calories unless you stuff it with dressing. Exactly. So it's <laughs> like you know, for for someone who's like trying to feed their family and they don't have access to a lot of income it's like yeah that's what i would choose too that's gonna fill that's gonna fill you up and food deserts luckily we don't uh, live in a food desert yeah. uh, we're in portland so this i mean is yeah like but a, you're in southwest portland so it's, yeah it's a little bit of it's a food a, desert. A there's actually bit. a really good uh chinese place over here it's called szechuan chef mm-hmm. it's like down uh, south it's like legit uh chinese mm-hmm. uh, cuisine it's really good but there are places in portland mm-hmm. that don't have access to you know grocery stores and I think probably less so in the city than in a lot of places, but yeah, lots of people in this country get their food from, uh, you know, the corner store, um, the dollar general where I'm from, uh, you know, I'm from a rural place and the dollar general is just kind of like taking over the world. Um, but there are no grocery stores, the grocery stores close and then you get dollar general Well, dollar general doesn't have, you know, fresh food to eat. They have lots of packaged things that are high in salt and sugar and fat and all these things that are like maybe less healthy choices if you're eating it all the time. So it's, it's just, yeah, it's the whole system. The system has to change. Right. Right. And I think, uh, it will, if people, you know, keep choosing products that are better because that's, mm-hmm. you know, the dollar is what votes essentially yeah, totally. in those things. Mm-hmm. And I like this thing I, um, heard, I forgot who told me, but ever since then, I always keep it in my mind when I'm at a grocery store 
but just like always shopping like around the perimeter. Yeah. Because that's where all the fresh stuff is. That's where mm-hmm. all the refrigerators. Mm-hmm. So if you just shop around the perimeter, you're pretty good. Like yeah. vegetables and proteins and Well, that I think kind of also it, I, another big piece that I talk about is that you know, and like I said earlier, it's not about perfection, it's about consistency. Mm-hmm. So if 80% of your diet is from that perimeter, you can have an Oreo. Yeah. So you can have some chips. Yeah, like Oreos are good. Yeah, Oreos are great. Like with that's, milk. That's fine. Like you brought those delicious burritos to shift. Yeah. Time. Like those were so, so good. good. I'd still, yeah, I, would, I could use one of those right now. Uh, you know, <laughs> TBH, I could too. It was very good. I've been thinking about it ever since then. Um, I am a secret, uh, <laughs> secret sponsor of, of them. <laughs> well, I'm product good. placing their delicious burritos. Um, but you know, like I think that understanding that food Food absolutely is medicine, and I totally believe that, and I think we should eat nutrient-dense foods as much as possible. But also, like, it's okay to eat some birthday cake or a cake at a wedding or, like, have a drink with your friends or, you know, like, food and drink is also celebration and it's culture and it's ritual and it, you know, it, it fills a lot of roles in our lives and understanding that people should have access to all those mm. roles. Like, it's okay. And I think that... As a profession, sometimes we get real caught up in that food is medicine and treat it as it is only for health and for, like, getting your nutrients in. And we kind of forget that piece of, like, well, sometimes food is just for fun. Right. And it's it's, it's, it's kind of pleasure in life. It's kind of like on a scale where you can either just, like, eat just, like, entirely crap diet of, like, mm-hmm. the worst things that you can imagine. Or you can have, like orthorexia where you're so mm-hmm. afraid to eat anything that yep. even the the mention of certain foods makes you anxious or totally if god forbid you had a little bit of wheat in your diet mm-hmm. you're just all day you're just in a frazzle totally and there's you know the interesting thing about that is there's there is some research that shows that when we are grateful for our food when we give thanks for our food when we just mm-hmm. have a little bit of gratitude or we're in that place of like receiving the nutrients we get more out of the food so if you're anxious about eating something, like you're not you're not getting any nutrition out of it anyway. Mm. So you know, really stressing out to that level is actually not a healthy thing. Not yeah. to mention just how like being anxious puts your body in that sympathetic state and that affects right. your digestion and all that kind of stuff. So it just all goes back to stress. Right. There's something uh, interesting I noticed about food and that idea of like gratefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do this thing. I think I did it for like a year or two where I would do like Reiki on my food before I would eat it for like five minutes or Mm -hmm. something like that. And for whatever reason, and I don't know why it is, it's very peculiar, but specifically when I did Reiki on my food, I always felt like it brought me into deep meditation really quickly. Hmm. Like there was something about like the food aspect of it. And I'm not sure what exactly it is, but I know like blessing foods and these kind of practices have been around for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder if not like there's some kind of like energy transfer going through your hands that you almost like feel like you're like taking in some kind of like etheric energy from it Mm -hmm. before you actually like physically eat it. Yeah. I could see that. that. I mean, you know, yeah. With the energetic (laughs) energetics of the world, like there's so much about that we don't understand. And I think that, yeah, if not everybody's in tune to that, but it's cool that you felt the difference. Yeah. I think it's really cool. interesting. Mm-hmm. So how can people find you, your work, your mm-hmm. clinic? Yes. Uh, I practice right now in Portland at two clinics, Heart Spring Health and Northwest Integrated Medicine down in Tualatin. So both in the Portland metro area. I have a website, drjoshcorn.com. And my Instagram is dr.joshcorn. 
on Instagram, so you can follow <laughs> me. <laughs> you can follow me there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I love working with men especially because that's um, kind of my, I don't know, area of expertise, I guess, but also people in bigger bodies and I love doing mental health and I kind of will do everything. Yeah, and I think that's that's really important work in, in these times where um, there's a lot of, you know, mental issues and other things in uh, males that they don't feel comfortable even talking about it because mm-hmm. there's this idea that, you know, um, vulnerability is weakness always. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't even share. They mm-hmm. just kind of keep grinding. And mm-hmm. they, it's really helpful to understand that, you know, everyone experiences a wide range of emotions. Exactly. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things you can do to help that also. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you for being on the Herbal Hour Podcast. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks Dr. for Corn. having me. Thank you. It's been yes. an excellent conversation as always.